And they keep wondering what, what on earth were the Rosicrucians, and they've got a long history, of course, and it's all partial myth, etc. But we do know that it broke out openly at Queen Elizabeth the first court in England. The advisors, the top advisors, were all Rosicrucians. And they had no pr- problem at all acquiring lots of money by plundering other vessels on the sea, especially those from Spain. And they were well rewarded for doing so. And they had their lodge meetings. And there's lots of history on that as well. Francis Bacon and many others were members of it. And what's that got to do with today? Well, I'm going to go into that and tell you. We're back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. As I said before the break, you can find out how to donate or buy that which I sell on CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website. It tells you how to pay as well, methods available. And remember, within the US and Canada, personal check is also accepted. Getting back into this hundred years war that we're now into, the war against ignorance according to those at the top. And those at the top have been writing about this this phase we're in now for over 200, 300 years. When you go back into the writings of the famous players in history, you find that those who went into, even before Darwin, they were into evolution. Didn't call it evolution, they called it different names at the time. But they were all into the necessity, and it was a necessity coming out again of Rosicrucian societies to bypass the old dogmas of the Catholic Church primarily. They even fostered the Protestant Church. There's no doubt whatsoever about that. Used that for a long time and then brought that down too. It fell by itself in a sense. You go into the writings of Luther himself, a place that was where Rosicrucianism was, was really uh, and the leading edge at that time in Germany and you look at his family crest which was the, the symbol of the, the rosy cross that's no coincidence so religion's always been used for certain periods by those who know how to use it to con- control the whole world if need be in fact it's controlling it right now under the, the supposed new age greening projects and sustainability that's a new religion but getting back to the past, the famous players, as I say, all, all were into evolution as a theory. And they were looking at all kinds of fossils and stuff to try and prove that there was no one biblical flood, but that there was different floods at different periods. In fact, at one time they wondered why they thought the earth maybe had sunk beneath the sea and then risen again. That theory still isn't discounted yet. And they've always tried to find key or links, basically, between different species that disappear and reappear, such as sea urchins and so on. And they've written screeds and screeds of books about that. In the 1800s, many of the famous scientists of their day wrote about finding this ether or whatever that was a missing link between species. And it's a lot of nonsense, but uh, they made their money at the time 
and they let them quietly disappear from the history books rather than discredit them because they need these theories to keep going, you see, because the theories all fit in line with where we're all supposed to go. And where is it we're all supposed to go? When you look again at the big players that promoted evolution and the religion, basically, again, it came out of the Enlightenment period hidden behind mystery religions, but it's still based on reason. Above all the myth and magic at the bottom was to do with superior man and inferior man. You find that even in ancient religions, since most of the morality talks that they give you and parables are about inferior and inf- uh, superior types. Something that's been ongoing for forever. Therefore, the Rosicrucians had massive cover at the bottom, just like the Masons of today do. If they, they, they are the cover, Pike, in fact, called Masonry the outer portico member of the lower degrees. They do believe in what they're told. There's no reason to, to suspect their order, but those above them are on a different course altogether. And you have to go into who charters them, who gives you the charter for a lodge to find the source of it all. And you always generally find royalty at the top of it. You give out the charters. And the Duke of Kent is generally the traditional whoever he happens to be at the time, but he's a traditional Grand Master for the Grand Lodge of England. Now, the Royal Society, as I say, is also a chartered organization. It started off as a branch of what people thought was mysticism from Rosicrucian orders. They met in secret. They did swear an oath to each other. They also brought in people like Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, became members. And you could not become a member if you were married and you wanted to stay with your wife and family. You had to provide for them or, or, and leave them at any cost and devote yourself to the order of the Royal Society. I don't think it was up until the 20th century they ever allowed a woman in, a woman scientist. And that's how they ran it, just like a a priestly monk sect. They talked about reason and the age of reason. Go in the past and look up the age of reason that came out of the Enlightenment and see what was behind it. Because at that time, too, they were collecting very old books, having them reprinted from the the pre-Christian philosophers of Greece, mainly. And they were debating a bigger, bigger world than had been allowed to them to debate by the Catholic Church. That's why they met in secret, because it was not too wise to speak openly in those days of sciences that contradicted or were in opposition or conflicted with the Bible. But they always had at their core, as I say, science at the top. And you'll find traces through their books of breeding, Eugenics, that we call it now eugenics. And there's no doubt about it, too, that certain societies did tend to pick the mates, the male and the female, to marry together to produce the right kind of offspring. We 
combined this with Dashwood's Society in Wickham, England. Benjamin Franklin was a member of it. They even had what they thought was what people called a, a whorehouse next to it. That was traditional too in those days because they did believe that a man had to generate himself, generate himself a power of generation through the sexual release. But it was more than that too because the one certainly at High Wycombe had not just prostitutes. These were women of good breeding. They were carriers of genes. And there's been articles in the newspaper over the years of newspapers when they excavated that particular house or mansion and they found underneath it the skeletons of babies. I guess they were the unauthorized offspring because they did want offspring and they would be adopted into a family, maybe not the father or the mother, but a family of the lodge. And they hoped to, to bring out certain traits like Plato talked about in the Republic by breeding certain traits together, especially scientific abilities or mathematical abilities. They had to hope to bring out a child with superior qualities. That was the whole thing behind it. And that still goes on today. Royalty were trying the same thing for thousands of years, but their qualities were, were generally un, unchanneled. They were kind of wild and all over the place. They were impatient. That was their fault. But they thought that if they could breed scientific people together with the same traits, they could in fact come out with a superior type to guide the world along a, this particular path of reason and logic where logic and those who decided that they had logic and reason would rule the world as it should be done. And they're against the breeding of the lower types, the base types, the profane as they called it. They like to hide that in, in modern times, but these old books certainly had a lot of that stuff in it. But out of these lodges and so on in this age of reason, you find the big players too that we're so familiar with, not mentioned uh, the Galtons, the Darwins and so on, the Huxleys. I'm going to some of their histories from their own writings for you. And in this day and age, with all of the articles I've been reading lately to do with population control, and you, you do know this is the official month, they might, they might extend it for two or three months, and all media to get it through to our heads that we've got to cull down ourselves, bring the population down for sustainability, of course. Now this is connected, this is all connected. This movement that started hundreds of years ago is still connected with what's happening today and with those at the top. Remember, the Council on Foreign Relations is a branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Private organizations massively, uh, massive funding to give out to NGOs. They run the world, they bypass democracy, they set the trends, they set the topics, they set the curriculum in universities and schools. They set the agenda. And they were secretive societies too. It's interesting that Brzezinski recently on a video was asked the question about the Trilateral Commission, the branch of the CFR, and the CFR. And he, he blithely said, well, you can read all about them. It's in the open. But just before he said that, he prefaced it with, well, you understand there's always an overt side to things and a covert side to things. 
the truth because every revolutionary movement that has an outward set, a political agenda, spoken to the public, always has its active inner group that will do the dastardly deeds if need be, whatever it happens to be. The covert group. So he was telling the truth about that. And before I carry on, I'll mention again an article I have read before to let you know how these articles are all being turned out at the right time until the public down below will prattle on, on about it in their conversations because they will believe what they're told since they don't reason. As Brzezinski said, be back with more after the following break. and no doubt took many, many oaths 
lead the world through argument along this particular route. That's how they do it. And this is by the grandson of Charles Darwin. It's called The Next Million Years by Charles Galton Darwin. He spends a lot of the book, again, comparing man with animals and saying, my God, you know, they'll outbreed and they won't have the food and yada, 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 and all this kind of stuff. But his big thrust is the wrong kinds will breed. He makes no, no, no bones about that. He says it openly. It's the wrong kind who will breed, you know. And he actually mentions the wrong kind. Uh, he, he actually couches it too, given a lot further. He says here, in page 93, he says, A man is promoted on account of his individual merits, without any thought about the consequences for the distant future, in a less abnormal world than the present. His increased prosperity should lead to a man's having a larger family, and those of the less prosperous so that, so that the good qualities inherited from him, the one with the most money, should gradually become diffused throughout the population in later generations. In the present time, the exact opposite happens all too often, in that he is likely to have a smaller family than the average. In fact, success in life is a present antagonistic to success in survival. Then he goes on to talk about parasites and so on, and how even parasites have a, a function. He says, it's always necessary to remember that nature itself is quite non-moral and that there are, many, there are many qualities by which we no means admire, which nevertheless are often regrettably effective in the struggle for life. All through the animal kingdom, one of the most successful roles is that of the parasite. And there are states of human society where such a parasite as a professional beggar is as successful as anyone else. Something of the kind is unfortunately true in Britain today, or just now, he says the people we are really encouraging are not those that we, th- we think we are. For a great many of the people who get good promotion are kind of contributing less to their share to the next generation. He said, at present, the most efficient way for a man to survive in Britain is to be almost half-witted. He says, that's what he thinks of the public. The profane, you see. Completely irresponsible and spending a lot of time in prison. For his health is far better looked after than outside. On coming out with restored health, he's ready to beget many further children quite promiscuously, and these problem children are then beautifully cared for by the various charitable societies and agencies until such time as they have grown old enough to carry on the good work for themselves. It is this parasitic type that is at present most favored in our country. If nothing is done, a point will come where the parasite will kill its host by exhaustion, and then, of course, itself perish miserably and contemptibly through having no one to support it. Now, though there may be occasions in human history when something of this kind can happen, there is no fear that it should happen to mankind as a whole, for a parasite is essentially subordinate to some host. And man claims, and claims reasonably to be master of the world, there's reason for him to be subordinate too. So there's no danger of mankind adopting the role of the parasite, he says this character who didn't uh, do much work in his lifetime. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, 
I'm Alan Watts, we're cutting through the matrix, reading from Charles Galton Darwin's book, The Next Million Years, printed in 1952. I think he himself was a physicist, and he was into eugenics in a big, big scale. I wouldn't say just as a sideline, I think that was really his favorite topic. But he talks about specializing the breeds of humanity, specializing by breeding. And he even suggests at one point that, tongue-in-cheek of course, that if he could only make the women of Britain and maybe the world accept the seed, the sperm of the fit, the aristocratic class like himself, they could breed out all the bad traits of humanity and bring in the good society. But on page 130, after talking about the different benefits of inbreeding as opposed to uh, the demerits of inbreeding as well. He goes on to say this. There may be those who will regret that man will not attain these pinnacles of specialization, that means through breeding, but the failure is inevitable. In order to create such specialist breeds, there would have to be a master breed at the summit. Summit, you see. You know, the Great Pyramid. And this would be a totally different kind of thing from all the other breeds because it would have to create itself. How would it create itself through genetics? Perhaps. Then he goes on to say, at every turn the argument leads back to this question of the master breed. Now remember what Plato talked about in the Republic, the master breed and so on, the guardian class, and how they breed specific humans for special tasks and so on, just like domestic animals. He talks about this too. It says nothing can be done in the way of changing man from a wild into a tame animal without first creating such a breed. But most people are entirely inconsistent in their ideas of what they want created. On the one hand, they feel that all the world's problems would be solved if only there were a wise and good man who would tell everybody what to do. But on the other hand, they bitterly resent being themselves told what to do. As to which of these motives would prevail, it seems at least probable that it would be the resentment, so that if the breed should arise in any manner, it would be extirpated before it could ever become well established. It is, however, imaginable that there might be a part of the world in which the breed was accepted. Now, that, this, is, this, this is straight out, really, of the New Atlantis by Bacon. It gives this allegorical concept of a place that eventually became America, of course, where they'd have a, a secret society running the world, although they'd have a form of government on the outside. So he says, maybe a part of the world in which the breed was accepted and that this part should gain superiority over the rest of the world because it could develop various suitable breeds of specialists under the control and direction of the master breed. That's Plato's Republic and it's the New Atlantis right there. And by the exercise of the skills of these specialists, it might overcome the other nations. So it's appropriate to look a little further into the matter. Imagine that through new discoveries in biology, say by suitably controlled doses of x-rays, which he, by the way, was experimenting with on, on different um, tissues, it becomes possible to modify the genes in any desired direction so that heritable changes can be produced in the qualities of some members of the human race. I may say I do not believe this is ever likely to be practical because there's so many, it's not predictable, that method, you see. It says, 
but that does not matter as far as concerns the present argument. The first success might be in some physical attribute, for example, by making a breed with longer and stronger legs so that it could jump a good deal higher than anyone can at present. But passing to more important matters, there might be a created a breed which could think more abstractly, say a breed of mathematicians, or one that could think more judiciously, say a breed of higher civil servants. And that's who will be bringing first, by the way, the, bureau, the, the bureaucrats and the scientists, if they haven't done it already. And the question arises of a more precise prescription for what the qualities of the master breed are to be. It is usually best to build on what one already has, rather to start from nothing. So the natural procedure would begin with existing rulers. Existing rulers. Now I've told you you have an international club of all those who've got from the top in every country, the long dynasties that have held on to power and their wealth. That's a criteria to get into this club. So this would begin with existing rulers, since these have already established themselves as acceptable to at least a good many of their fellow creatures. One would collect together, say, a hundred of the most important present rulers. Among them, of course, should be included a good many who exert secret influence without holding any overt office. Do you know where he got that part from? That's the same thing uh, as Carl Quigley was talking about in Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American establishment when he says those who are on the exoteric in the political scene will not have the true power. He says the technocrats, like the Maurice Strongs and these characters, the Brzezinskis, the Kissingers, and a whole host of them would have the real power. That's what, that's what he means. So he, he knew, it was already on the go, you see, when this book was written in the 1950s. Among them, of course, should maybe include a good many who exert secret influence without holding any overt office. That way they're not really, um, they, have to, they don't have to uh, answer to the public. And tell them to get on with this business of settling what the master breed should be. It's impossible to believe that any such body of men would ever reach agreements on any subject whatsoever, so this plan fails. In a search for the qualities of the master breed, the next idea might be to appeal to the wisdom of our forefathers. Plato and his Republic devotes much attention to this very subject. Why not then find a Plato, give him his group of recruits, and let him educate them for 30 years according to his prescription, though perhaps fortifying it by the findings of modern educational theory, the result should be the master breed. And he says, but this one will not do either, for Plato was not educating the master breed, he was educating the civil servant breed. It's not about these that there's any difficulty, it's the finding of someone to fill the role of Plato himself. It all comes back to the point that we do not know in the remotest degree what we want. But I do not count as an answer the one that would usually be postponed, proposed, which would be that the type required should be good and wise, while at the same time showing a special favor for the particular enthusiasms of the proposer. The reason for the possibility of making a prescription for the master breed is that it's not a breed at all. To call it so is to change the sense of the word. Breeds are specialized for particular purposes, but the essence of masters is that they must not be specialized. You see, they must be wild. That's what he means. Now remember, he and others have written in, in their books that those who rule the world will not alter themselves with brain chips or anything else. They're not hampered either as they grow up through the educational system we all have. 
they're impervious to most of the laws because they're wild. He said they must retain their abilities of survival, their capabilities of survival, because they will be steering planet Earth. That's what he means by that. So he says, they have to be able to deal with totally unforeseen conditions, and this is a quality of wild, not of tame life. No prescription for the master breed is possible. In these considerations, I've been assuming the license of supposing that we might be able really to change human nature in a heritable manner, and this is far beyond all probability. Returning now to more practical considerations, there seems no likelihood whatsoever of a master breed arising. All through history, the most formidable difficulty every ruler has been selection of a successor, and the best intentions have been nearly always disappointed. Indeed, it is notably surprising how very seldom the choice has been well made. The immediate cause of these failures has been the difficulty of the subjective judgments on the basis of which the choice must be made, but fundamentally have risen from a cause in the deep nature of mankind. Of all animals, man, again, animal, you see, is the most ready to try experiments, and there are always candidates far too many candidates who regard themselves as fit members for the master breed. This is a message for all those who think they're going to get up there. Who regard themselves as fit members for the master breed. This quality is a characteristic of a wild animal, and it will always prevent man from domesticating himself. He will always prevent the creation of the master breed, through which alone the rest of man could be domesticated. The evolution of the human race will not be accomplished in the 10,000 years of tame animals, but in the million years of wild animals, because man is and will always continue to be a wild animal. He promotes that those at the top should be not subject to the laws of the land or the world. They should be wild. And if you look at a lot of the aristocrats and, and the lifestyles that they have and the things that they do, they get off with everything because they're naturally wild. And these are the ones who aren't bothered with human decisions too much. They, they make quick snap decisions. They're wild. That's the type he's favoring here. And he goes into it deeper and deeper in his book. And it's interesting, too, that you'll find Plato mentioned over and over in all of the Rosicrucians publications. You'll find them talked about by members of the CFR, the Royal Super International Affairs, the Fabian Society. Wells and many others always talked about Plato and his Republic being their favorite book. They're giving you a clue because Plato advised this particular specialized breeding where those at the top will retain their wildness and survival capabilities and those down below will be a domestic herd that are either brought up to strength for wars or culled down in times of peace and they'll be bred for the particular function in life. And that's exactly where the whole area of eugenics and genetics is being guided today into that very, very thing. Now here's an article that ties in with this again because they're using the global warming for the world scam to bring the world together. Remember the Club of Rome in their book called The First Global Revolution they said they came up with the scam idea after looking at everything that would unite man, they'd blame man for destroying his environment and the atmosphere itself. And look where it's got us today. 
you're a depression going on. What's the, what's the odds of all this happening at once? You're a depression, a financial depression going on, and that was rigged, of course, to be the right time. And we're going totally global. They're regionalizing the whole world together. Unemployment skyrocketing. Your five agri-food businesses are tightening the reins on food. It will bring shortages. That's part of the of the strategy. It to get us all to our knees. And at the same time, they're going to push all these carbon taxes, etc., which are further going to hurt us all. We're going to be dominated, you see, by Mother Earth. And they planned that a long, long time ago. This is from Cozy News, K-U-S-I. Cozy News, San Diego. The amazing story behind the global warming scam by John Coleman. The key players are now all in place in Washington and in state governments across America to officially label carbon dioxide as a pollutant. That which we breathe out as a pollutant. And enact laws that tax we citizens for our carbon footprints. Only two details stand in the way, the faltering economic times and a dramatic return towards a colder climate. The climate isn't cooperating no matter how much they spray it and use harp. The last two bitter winters have led to a rise in public awareness there's no runaway global warming. The public is now becoming skeptical of the claim that our carbon footprints from the use of fossil fuels is going to lead us to climatic calamities. How did we ever get to this point where bad science is driving big government to punish the citizens for living the good life that fossil fuels provide for us? Remember, too, this all ties in with the need to, for, for depopulation. Don't ever forget that when you read any of these stories. The story begins with an oceanographer named Roger Revelle. He served with the Navy in World War II, after the war became director of the Scripps Oceanographic Institute in La Jolla in San Diego, California. Revelle saw the opportunity to obtain major funding from the Navy for doing measurements and research on the ocean around the Pacific atolls where the U.S. military was conducting atomic bomb tests. He greatly expanded the Institute's areas of interest and, among others, hired Hans Swiss a noted chemist from the University of Chicago who was very interested in the traces of carbon in the environment from the burning of fossil fuels. Ravel tagged on to Swiss and studies and co-authored a paper with him in 1957. The paper raises the possibility that the carbon dioxide might be creating a greenhouse effect and causing atmospheric warming. It seems to be a plea for funding for more studies. Of course it's a plea for... They get all their funding from these studies, so they drag them on as long as they can. Funding, frankly, is where Ravel's mind was most of the time, it says here. He then hired a geochemist named David Keeling to devise a way to measure the atmospheric content of carbon dioxide. In 1960, Keeling published his first paper showing the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and linking the increase to the burning of fossil fuels. It's kind of like deciding what you're going to go out and look for and finding it, isn't it? The two research papers became the bedrock of the science of global warming, even though they offered no proof that carbon dioxide was, in fact, a greenhouse gas. In addition, they failed to explain how this trace gas, only a tiny fraction of the atmosphere, could have any significant impact on temperatures. Now let me take you back to the 1950s when this was going on. The cities were entrapped in a pall of pollution from the crude internal combustion engines that powered cars, trucks, and so on. Cars and factories and power plants were filling the air with all sorts of pollutants, 
There was valid and serious concern about the health consequences of this pollution, and a strong environmental movement was developing to demand action. Of course it was. They were all getting funded by the big foundations who started them up and told them what their job was. Government accepted this challenge, and new environmental standards were set. Scientists and engineers came to the rescue. They reformulated fuels, developed for cars. The new cars were high-tech, computer-controlled engines with catalytic converters. By the mid-70s, cars were no longer big-time polluters, emitting only some carbon dioxide and water vapor from their trail tailpipes. Likewise, new fuel processing and smokestack scrubbers were added to industrial and power plants, and their emissions were greatly reduced. I'll add to that that they also moved most of the factories out of the country. But it says, but an environmental movement had been established and its funding and its very existing depended, existence depended on having a continuing crisis issue. So the research papers from Scripps came at just the right moment. And with them came the birth of an issue, man-made global warming from the carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels. Oil and Keeling use this new alarmist to keep their funding growing. Other researchers with environmental motivations and a hunger for funding saw this developing and climbed aboard as well. Research grants began to flow, and the alarming hypothesis began to show up everywhere. And I'm going to skip some of it here, because then he goes into some of the main players here. He says, back in the 1960s, this global warming research came to the attention of a Canadian-born United Nations bureaucrat named Maurice Strong. Well, he was picked up by Rockefeller. That's the man who groomed him for this position, and Rockefeller Foundation runs the United Nations. We're back with more after this break. war with the world and it happens to be man as it war with it. So they only save us all through 
warming, but we've got to reduce the population as well, you see. And this article also goes in to, to explain Al Gore and how he said years ago, even though the, the evidence was turning against him in global warming, there, there would be no argument on this. It was a mandate. And I've said that before. It doesn't matter what you say or, or what the weather proves. Who are you going to believe, Al Gore or your lying eyes? Simple as that. And also, Roger Revelle, by the way, who dreamed up this thing in the first place, and other ones, once he'd retired, came out to government and said the whole thing was based on fake science. It's in the article as well. And they're all told to leave the room because the agenda is the agenda. But he and other ones came out and said to wait another 20, 30 years before we'd make this a mandate because the proof was not in. So the global warming frenzy was becoming the cause celeb of the media. After all, the media is mostly liberal, loves Al Gore, what's all run and owned by the same guys that own the foundations, isn't it? They love Al Gore, loves to warn us of impending disasters and tell us the sky is falling, the sky is falling. The politicians and environmentalists love it too. But I'll put this up, a link up on my site at the end of the show. And you can go through it at your leisure, because it really does give all the statements that Al Gore gave out regarding the fact there will be no argument about this at all. Also, look into the history of Al Gore and see who groomed him. It's really intriguing. Really, really intriguing, because Armand Hammer took over the grooming of Al Gore. You're talking about secret societies. These are the guys. Armand Hammer had an apartment next to Lenin and then in Stalin and still ran an empire back in the U.S. during the entire Cold War. Quite something. Well, that's a, a rushed bunch of info for tonight from myself and Hamish, Ontario, Canada. So it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.